Welcome to another edition of Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by The Score and now presented by Subway. I'm Joseph Cacharo, joined in studio as always by Joe Wolfland. What up? All right, we've got a lot to get to today and later in the show I'm actually going to be calling up former NBAers Quentin Richardson and Darius Miles to talk about their new podcast, The Players' Tribute. But before we do anything, let's chirp our boy Wolfond who wrote uh, a great piece, you should actually check it out, uh, on the Score app, he put it up yesterday, titled, Maybe the Celtics Just Aren't That Good. And about a half day later, those not good Celtics went out and stomped the Warriors at Oracle. So Joe, what are your thoughts? I mean, I have to stand by the piece, at least for now. Uh, I can't let one outcome change uh, my feelings, but um, look, I, I wrote that piece in response to this sort of groundswell of takes about what was wrong with the Celtics. And everybody, I think, kind of had uh, their own notion about, you know, what... And I think probably a lot of factors have contributed to it. And um, I'm not saying that anybody's takes have been necessarily wrong. I just think there's been a lot of bending over backwards to try and parse what the issues with this team have been uh, while sort of ignoring what to me felt like the most obvious reason that they haven't lived up to expectations, which is that maybe we set those expectations a little bit too high in the first place. And I didn't mean to say that the Celtics were not good, just that I don't think they were, they are as good as a lot of people expected them to be or made them out to be. And there's a lot that's gone into that. You know, one of those things is that Jason Tatum really hasn't taken the step forward I think a lot of people expected. And the other is that Gordon Hayward has not been close to the player that people expected him to be. And, you know, if we had known that Hayward would be this version of himself and that Tatum would basically be the same player that he was last year, would we have set the expectations for this team as high as we did? And if we hadn't, I don't know if there would have been this much noise around the team and this much effort that's gone into figuring out what's wrong with them and, and this much sort of media scrutiny that I think in a lot of ways has kind of driven the team to the, the sense of despair uh, that it's been driven to. And, and, you know, I think the weight of those expectations has maybe played a part in the feeling of dysfunction around the team. And I just kind of got to a point where I'm not sure if it's like internal dysfunction or a lack of chemistry or Kyrie Irving putting his foot in his mouth time and again. Um, But more so just the fact that the team isn't, you know, in terms of pure talent, the best team in the Eastern Conference. And I don't know if, you know, one dominant win over the Warriors necessarily changes that, but um, we've been kind of doing this dance all season long where it's like, oh, the Celtics aren't that good. But then suddenly they seem like they've turned a corner. And once they seem like they've turned a corner, well, they go on a skid again. And uh, that's why I'm not, you know, reading too much into that result. Because I still think if you take their whole body of work this season, um, you know, they, they to me just don't look like the class of the Eastern Conference. So It's interesting because it, it's, it's a contrast from last year in that Last year, um, Gordon Hayward goes down game one and Kyrie eventually goes down before the playoffs and the Celtics keep reeling off these wins and beating good teams and eliminating teams and getting to the East Finals. And it was the opposite. At one point last year, we finally got to a point where everyone said, well, maybe this isn't a surprise. Maybe this team is just that good. Maybe these young guys are just that good. So it's just interesting that less than a year later, we're on, and I agree with you, but we're on the opposite end of the spectrum. It's like, oh, actually this year, maybe they're not. And there is... Sometimes, yeah, we try to read so much into things. Why isn't this working? Is it the chemistry? And sometimes you really do just have to look at it and be like, no, this team's not as good as we thought. And I think it's entirely possible that we overreacted to that playoff run. And if you look back at it, I mean, they beat the Milwaukee Bucks, a very kind of disorganized and poorly coached Milwaukee Bucks team in seven games, Um, albeit one that I think had a lot of talent, as we're seeing this season. But uh, then they go out and they beat a Sixers team that had really been on a hell of a run to finish that season out. And I don't entirely know what happened in that series. I think the Sixers were probably pretty ill-prepared. They were still very inexperienced. The Celtics completely out-executed them. Uh, And then they go to seven with the Cavaliers team that frankly wasn't very good and that probably should have lost in the first round. And so from that, maybe we drew a few too many sweeping conclusions. And, you know, I think another mistake that we make often 
and we tend to just never really learn our lesson in this regard but like the progress of young players is very rarely perfectly linear and so to expect that guys like Jalen Brown and Terry Rozier and Jason Tatum were just going to continue to get better uh, was obviously flawed and, and those guys you know some of them you could say have regressed and some have kind of plateaued but um, as I wrote in that piece and as I've kind of been saying all season long Apart from Kyrie Irving, Marcus Smart, and maybe Marcus Morris, pretty much every player on the Celtics has underperformed relative to the expectations that were placed on them. And uh, I think, you know, that's just the reality of the situation. They just they just haven't been as good as I think we expected them to be. Yeah, I don't think anyone can argue uh, with that. We'll get to the Warriors half of, of last night's game a little later in the show because I have some thoughts on that too. Um, but until then, let's, uh, let's please our friends at Subway our great sponsors, and uh, get to this Sweet versus Heat segment. Uh, so Sweet versus Heat, brought to you by the team at Subway, whose new Sweet versus Heat chicken sandwiches are making people choose which side they're on. So let's talk about some players and teams that are going through some sweet stretches, some hot stretches if they're a team. Uh, and we'll begin with you, Wolf. And who's your player making sweet moves right now? I got to give it up to Carl Anthony Towns, who hung 41 and 14 on the Thunder last night and has really just been playing out of his mind for the last couple of weeks. And for one thing, something just seems to happen to the Wolves when they play against the Thunder. Last time out, it was Andrew Wiggins going for 40 and 10. Um, This time it was Towns. And I mean, it seems like every year he kind of does this after the All-Star break, goes completely bananas. I feel like maybe the next step in his development as a player is just to do it like to start season the same way that he finishes them. Uh, but he just, I think, is like really an impossible cover for pretty much any center in the league. And one of the things I noticed in that Thunder game was just he hits these flat-footed jumpers that are impossible to read, and there's no way to defend them because he'll just be standing there holding the ball kind of shoulder height. And next thing you know, like, he'll have put up a jumper, you know, without really winding up for it or preparing for it at all. Um, his shot will just be in the air, and it's remarkably accurate given sort of how little body movement is involved. He's so hot right now that the score's fire alarm is going off in the background. <laughs> That's right. Um, and, yeah, man, I, I just, I, I don't know exactly what you do about that because, uh, and he's also, like, for a guy his size, just moves really, really well and has a pretty solid handle. Like he, he dropped a really nice step-back jumper in that game over Nerland's Noel. Uh, he cocked it back a couple of times on driving dunks, like he was cutting well. Um, I, I just, you know, when he plays with energy and with purpose, you know, he, he reminds us that, that he is one of the most dynamic big men in the game. And uh, his penchant for kind of drifting in and out, again, like the latter portions of the last couple of seasons, he has managed to just sort of hone in uh, on the things that make him special. And... Yeah, just, I, I would just love to see him do that for a full season. Yeah, I, I think it was like three, four weeks into the season, I wrote uh, a feature about how the Wolves and Towns himself needed to coax more out of Carl Anthony Towns because the last couple of years, but especially the beginning of this year when all that Butler drama was going on, um, it was astonishing how poorly utilized Carl Anthony Towns was on this team in that, like, there were games where he was seventh on the team in usage. Seventh, man. Like, there was games, Josh Okogi, who's having a great rookie year, don't get me wrong, was above him in usage, which should never happen. Like, in towns, and we're seeing it now, we're talking about um, one of the most uniquely skilled offensive big men ever. Forget right now, like, that I've ever seen. And the fact that they weren't force-feeding him and that he wasn't demanding the ball at times and just kind of, like, falling through the cracks and and going whole games without asserting his will was ridiculous. Um, that obviously is no longer the case. Yeah, you mentioned it since the All-Star break, but really for the majority of the year since I'd say that first month, month and a half, and especially after Jimmy Butler got traded, he has taken on that mantle, which he should have had the whole time. You know, in previous years, even before Jimmy Butler got there, Wiggins would have a higher usage rate. Derrick Rose, as good of a year as he's having, should not be you know, running the offense more than Carl Anthony Towns should. So I think they finally figured something out, and it wasn't that hard to figure out in the first place, get Carl Anthony Towns the damn ball because he needs it and he deserves it. And it's interesting too because they've, you know, they've been a pretty mediocre team since the Butler trade. And I don't say that in a negative way. I say that in a positive way because most people expect them to completely fall off 
And maybe now you are starting to see like a semblance of a foundation that they can go forward with and that you've got this transcendent offensive talent, surround them with some good complementary players, defenders like Robert Covington when he's healthy, and, and you might have something there and you might have the backbone of a consistent playoff team regardless of whether Andrew Wiggins figures it out or not. Yeah, I think a big thing has just been finding different spots to get him the ball. Uh, they're running more sets with him in the high post and from the elbow. And part of that is just... You know, there is a two-pronged issue with, uh, you know, the way that he's been utilized in the past couple of seasons. And one is that his teammates, you know, sometimes just don't look for him enough. And the other is that he sometimes isn't aggressive enough with those duck-ins and getting post-position. And, uh, you know, the Wolves also just don't have great post-entry passers. So um, to, to just kind of find different spots of getting him the ball and letting him operate the offense from different places on the floor rather than just waiting for him to kind of establish post position and, and utilizing him in that way it has been pretty effective as well. So um, I think you're totally right, uh, you know, and, and orienting their offense around him is pretty clearly the right approach to me, given the kind of complementary talent that they have on hand. Yeah, um, we're going to stick with the big man, my sweet player of the week, Andre Drummond. Let's give some love to Andre Drummond, because I think um, he's been the butt end of a lot of jokes for myself included. It, for a guy as physically dominating as he is, he's a pretty poor offensive player. And like, you look through his career, he's never been the most efficient scorer, which is mind-boggling consider that he's, considering that he's always within like five feet of the hoop. And then, you know, the beginning of this year, I know a lot of people kind of made fun of uh, the whole thing about how he was going to shoot threes and he didn't do that well and them forcing post-ups for him when it didn't work. Well, the last 15 games, Andre Drummond is averaging roughly 21 points, 16 rebounds, two steals, pretty absurd for a big man, two blocks, on about 63% shooting. And listen, he's put up big numbers before, but I don't know if there's ever been a stretch in his career where he's played this well and had it directly impact winning the way it is right now. Pistons are 9-2 and two in their last 11. They've shot all the way up to 6th in the East. They In that stretch, they've beaten Denver, Indy, and Toronto without Kawhi, but still a good win for them. And in that game especially, I think it really stood out. Drummond battled foul trouble, and the Pistons cratered when he was off the floor. So this was a game that went to overtime against the Raptors. No one else from either team was better than a plus eight in this game. Andre Drummond in only 28 minutes was a plus 27, which really just goes to show you, um, yeah, how valuable he's become during this, you know, last like 10, 15 game stretch. Yeah, it's a small sample size, but the Pistons are winning. They're playing well. You know, they're in a spot where if they stay in six and Indiana stays in three, I know you're a big Pacers fan. And listen, they deserve a lot of praise for what they've done, even without Oladipo, but you know, I don't think anyone's thinking it's crazy for the Pistons to upset them in a potential 6-3 matchup. So it's it's pretty absurd what the Pistons have done the last few weeks, but especially what Andre Drummond's done to help them get there. I personally would still be pretty surprised if the Pistons won a playoff series, but I totally agree. Drummond's been great, and he's always had really good hands for a big man. Uh, he's always generated a lot of steals. It's just been a kind of question of how engaged he is um, and, you know, how smart he is, basically, at the defensive end, because... A lot of the times in service of chasing those stats, chasing steals and chasing blocks, he's gambled his way out of position. I think he's doing that a lot less. Um, something Zach Lowe did a really good job of highlighting highlighting in, in his last uh, 10 things piece was just the way that Drummond is basically keeping his hands up and moving them like crazy anytime uh, he's defending the pick and roll. And, you know, given his reach, um, and the way that he's able to slide his feet, like he ends up getting his hands on a lot of balls, and that has made a huge difference. Um, and I don't know, to me, he just, I don't know if it's that he looks trimmer, but he just seems to be moving a little bit quicker right now than he was earlier in the season. And I think that's made an impact at both ends of the floor. Another insane thing with Drummond, too, like we already knew he was an improved free throw shooter after his first, you know, five years in the league, shooting about 38% from free throw, from the free throw line, which is insane. He's up to about 58.5% his last two seasons. The craziest part of that is this season, in uh, what the NBA defines as clutch time, you know, games within five points, final five minutes, Andre Drummond's free throw percentage, 88%. Like, the guy's not only become an improved free throw shooter, but you can depend on him to knock down clutch free throws. Yeah, he hit a couple uh, clutch free throws in overtime of, uh, of that game against the Raptors this past week. Um... I don't know, man. Virtual reality works, I guess, is the big takeaway here. It worked for him. It worked for DeAndre Jordan. Um, so I guess, yeah, anybody who's struggling with their shot, I mean, maybe Ben Simmons needs to uh, needs to start visualizing himself taking some threes in the VR machine. 
I think the only thing Ben Simmons is visualizing at the free throw line is, uh, this is Jenner, but that's a, that's a topic for another day and perhaps another podcast. Um, let's, let's go to the hot teams. Team's bringing the heat right now. Hopefully the fire alarm doesn't go off again when we start talking about this, but who's your team? I think it's got to be the Rockets. Uh, they have won six games in a row. That includes wins over the Warriors, the Celtics, and the Raptors. Uh, they are finally healthy again and clicking really on all cylinders right now. I mean, their offense has basically stayed afloat all season long despite the injuries they have. Uh, but finally, I think uh, the guys who have come back have taken a bit of pressure off of Harden. And their defense, I think, is starting to come around finally. Uh, they had what I thought was one of their best defensive performances of the season against the Raptors last night. Chris Paul, uh, who had a pretty rough game against the Raptors, uh, at least in terms of shooting the ball, has really, I think, started to look like himself again uh, in, in terms of the way that he's moving, uh, the way that he's controlling tempo, the way that he's manipulating defenses. It, he just looks so much more fluid than he did at the start of the season when, I don't know, maybe he was still being bothered by his hamstring a little bit or his knee. Um, and, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that they were so thin for so long, and I still don't really trust their bench, but it's, like, given them a little bit more backbone than they had before. And, like, Harden had, was really, like, through three quarters having one of his worst games of the season last night. And ultimately, their bench... Uh, led by Gerald Green, Austin Rivers, Nene, and Gary Clark, uh, managed to keep the Rockets afloat, and then Harden finally went off in the fourth quarter. And Harden and Chris Paul shot a combined 13 for 40 in that game, and they still managed to win by double digits. So they, to me, are starting to look like the team that they were supposed to be. Um, And having everybody back healthy and having Chris Paul playing like Chris Paul uh, is going to make them a team to be reckoned with down the stretch. Yeah, I think the CP3 thing is a big part of it. He just looks like more like himself. The closest to himself he's looked in a while, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the Rockets are now playing their best ball this season. They've got the longest winning streak in the NBA at six games. They've beaten good teams during that stretch. Um, you know, they they won at Golden State, at Boston, and at Toronto during this six-game winning streak. Yeah. You know, three road wins at, as good as they come. Um, I, so I was in the Rockets locker room post-game, yesterday after they beat the Raptors. And it's interesting you mentioned health because Chris Paul went out of his way to mention, you know, when people were asking him what's different and even the bench playing well, and he consistently kept saying we're healthy, we're healthy. And it was, it's interesting because, you know, most guys at this kind of point of the year talk about the fact that, you know, oh, everyone's got injuries this time of the year. Everyone's a little nicked up, bruised, banged up. And the Rockets, it almost seems like the opposite. And Chris Paul was talking about this too, that it's, you know, they're in this weird situation where they're actually getting healthier as the year goes on. And while everyone else is talking about being banged up and having to get through it, the Rockets are talking about, look, man, we haven't been this healthy all year. Dan Tony said it before the game too. After mentioning that they've come back from the dead, he said, you know, they had, they've had a five-game stretch recently until last night, I think, where they had their whole lineup intact. And it was the first time all season they've done that. And I think that's pretty scary for teams out West. Say what you will about no one beating the Warriors, but this team came pretty damn close last year if it wasn't for Chris Paul's uh, wonky hamstring and again they're the hottest team in the league right now you know the Warriors haven't looked that great they're putting themselves at least back in the conversation and that's all you could have asked for considering where they were a few months ago and I don't know man like you look at their schedule they've not closed within three and a half games of second place Denver who hasn't been as good as they were early in the year I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that like that final week of the season the Rockets are in play for a top two seed for sure. I mean, most importantly, they just, I think, want to be in the 2-3 bracket, and they have played their way into a tie for third place in the West, which is going to be really interesting, I think, down the stretch to see how that plays out, because obviously it's super important to stay out of the Warriors bracket if you want to make it to the conference finals. And if they manage to get into the 2-3, I, I would feel pretty confident about their chances of getting back uh, to the Final Four. They're 28-11 and 11 since that ghastly 11-14 and 14 start. Still some kind of troubling signs uh, because they're only 22nd in defense over that stretch. Uh, Defensive rebounding has continued to be an issue for them. But, um, I mean, first of all, I just want to shout out P.J. Tucker, who doesn't get a lot of love when we talk about this Hounding Kawhi last night. Hounding. He's just, I feel like he gets better defensively every season long, and I don't know where they would be without him. Like, he has continued to just hold that defense together almost by himself. Um, So... Yeah, I mean, I, again, like, I think if we're talking about which team 
is most likely to give the Warriors trouble in a series. I mean, I think to me, it's probably it's the Rockets or it's the Thunder. And uh, the Thunder haven't looked all that great recently. And we can talk about that later. They haven't had Paul George. But um, right now, to me, the Rockets are the hottest team in the league. I'm going to go with a kind of off-the-board pick. There's not Honestly, other than the Rockets, there's no team on like crazy uh, winning streaks. The team tied for the second longest winning streak in the league. And I'm going to show them some love because of their resiliency. They're not in the playoff race anymore. But the New Orleans Pelicans, uh, amid what Alvin Gentry accurately described as a dumpster fire of a situation a couple weeks ago, um, Anthony Davis wanting out. You see how you know those trade talks impacted the Lakers, for example. And then you look at the Pelicans, the ones that are directly dealing with it and the fact that their franchise player wants out and he's not even playing full games when he does play. They're taking him out in crunch time. The Pelicans are 7-5 and five in their last 12. During that stretch, they've beaten the Thunder, the Lakers, and two road wins at Denver and at Utah. Okay, Two very tough places to play. Davis has missed three of those 12 games. And in the nine games he's played, he's only averaging 22 minutes a game. And again, he's not playing in crunch time, even in close games. The Pelicans are winning those minutes in crunch time without Anthony Davis during this uh, 12-game stretch. I just think, look, yeah, they're not going to make the playoffs. In general, the franchise is in a bad spot. But I wanted to take a couple minutes and say credit Alvin Gentry, credit Drew Holiday, um, and all those kind of you know guys we pretty much describe as scrubs outside of Julius Randle and Drew Holiday. Julius Randle also playing really well. Um, but yeah, they, I think they just deserve credit for sticking with it, staying resilient. You know, even when they lose, they're at least giving teams a fight. A lot of teams would have cratered by now. I agree. I still don't really know why they're bothering with this whole Anthony Davis charade. Like, what is the point? Well, the league's kind of making them. I know. And I just, for all parties involved, it just doesn't seem to make sense. It doesn't make sense really for the league, as far as I'm concerned, because he's getting these token 20 minutes a game and then sitting during the fourth quarter and not playing in crunch time. And it's so transparent and like <laughs> they're just doing it to appease the league for what reason? I don't, I don't really understand it. Uh, but given the circumstances, yeah, they played extremely well. Holiday has been awesome. And look, they're, they're 30 and 36. The Lakers are 30 and 34. And it's wild because if not for the whole Davis fiasco, you know, if he just decided to sit on that trade request and wait until the off season, I mean, they could very well be in the playoff mix right now uh, with him leading the way. So it's disappointing that it happened and that it worked out the way that it did. But I'm with you, man. Credit to the Pelicans for kind of hanging tough and not rolling over. So you mentioned the Lakers, and I think uh, the perfect segue to get to the Lakers is by talking about the Pelicans because these two franchises are linked uh, for better or worse right now. The Lakers are done to me. You know, I for years... I've said you never dealt LeBron. I think most people have said that too. And you don't want to have egg on your face when LeBron, you know, engineers another 3-1 type comeback like he did in 2016. But I think they're done. They're five and a half games out. I think five or six back in the lost column with less than a quarter of the season to go and at least two teams to jump. It's just not happening. This team's clearly not good enough. Um, LeBron James is going to pass Michael Jordan tonight, most likely, uh, on the all-time scoring leaderboard. I think coming into the year, if someone would have told you LeBron's passing MJ in like you know in March, you'd probably think all right, and the Lakers are probably in a playoff spot, and it's you know one of these final steps on LeBron engine, uh, putting together his own goat resume. Does it taint that for you? You know, like the the circumstances around it, not taint the milestone because the milestone is the milestone, but it just doesn't seem to have the flair it should. LeBron passing MJ. I don't know if taint is the right word, but it definitely will make it feel hollow. And it's been kind of a thing all season long where LeBron is attaining these milestones. And after these dispiriting losses, he will take to Instagram to talk about how proud he is of himself for attaining them, which by all means, I mean, that's his prerogative. He has had an astounding career and, you know, he deserves all the praise that he gets. And, and I don't really have an issue with, you know, him posting on Instagram about the next, you know, milestone that he's achieved, but it's kind of a bad look in light of everything that is happening with the team. And it's, you know, when he passes MJ, like, I think it will be a great moment for him personally, but I just think it's going to feel so hollow. And like you said, I mean, everything that's gone wrong with this Lakers season is probably changing people's idea of what LeBron's legacy really is. And I think we came into this season thinking 
he had a chance, and, and you know, knowing that this moment would probably come this season, he was going to at least make it a conversation. Um, and he himself came out, uh, I don't know if it was on the shop or in some different um, platform where he basically said that he felt when he won that championship in 2016 that that had made him the greatest player of all time. And it was a conversation that people were starting to have. And I look, we can revisit that conversation at another time. I don't think this is the time to have right. that conversation because obviously the blame for what's happened with this Lakers season does not squarely fall on his shoulders, but he has contributed, I think, to the dysfunction, uh, both in terms of you know the, what, what he's done behind the scenes and the blessing he seemingly gave the front office to acquire the players it did and the way that you know whatever part he may have played in trying to engineer an Anthony Davis trade that kind of torpedoed that team's locker room and frankly the effort that he's given at the defensive end of the floor all season long uh, he definitely bears some blame for that and I think rightly or wrongly now that he's in the Western Conference and is going to not only not make the finals for the first time in almost a decade, but not even make the playoffs, I'm sure there are people who are going to reevaluate the things that he accomplished in the East over the last eight years, which, I mean, to me, they aren't any less impressive than they were, but for this to have been his first season with a new team and a new conference, you know, without a superstar running mate, uh, it, you know, it has not been great for his legacy, I'll say that. Yeah, I think the most jarring thing for me, and you know, you mentioned it, that there is at least some blame to fall on his shoulders, a lot of blame to fall on his shoulders this year. I think the difference is like, you know, the usual things people hold against LeBron, the finals record, whatever you want to say, for the most part, you could look at all of those losses and say none of it falls on him. You know, the Cavs even getting to the finals in 2007 with LeBron and a bunch of guys that me and you might be able to take in a two-on-two game was a miracle in itself. Um, transforming the heat the way he did despite the big three with him at his apex like even those losses they had in the finals okay Dirk he LeBron had the bad 2011 final and that was it but other than that his losses in the finals you know the first year he went back to Cleveland and they took two games off that 67 win Warriors team without Kyrie and Kevin Lovick there was always something you can point to and say look this isn't on LeBron and I don't think you can do that this year. Yes, the 18 games he missed with injury obviously impacted their team. But since he's been back, they haven't been any better. Their defense has gotten worse. He's shown very little to no effort on the defensive end. And he just hasn't been able to pick this team up off the mat the way he has in the past with the Cavs or the Heat or whoever. To me, that's the most jarring thing is that there's finally a moment where, you know, LeBron's team is is falling apart and he is at least partly to blame. And look, maybe... Maybe part of this is just because we've gotten so used to LeBron being indestructible and so durable and, you know, being there 95% of the time, even in the regular season. And look, he is in year 16. He is 33, 34, whatever he is. Kobe's Achilles was nearly popped by this point. MJ was like playing in Washington, if even that. I don't even know if he played 16 seasons, you know. And the fact that LeBron in year 16 is still the focal point of a team that was supposed to have these grand playoff aspirations... Maybe that's really the point that, it, you know, he's starting to look not so much human, but just a little less king-like. Yeah, and I think it's really important to put all that in context, given his age and the number of miles that he has on his body. I mean, the fact that we even expect this from him and, you know, that he is even putting up the numbers that he is in spite of, you know, the, the way that his defense may have fallen off is really incredible. And it, it's just disappointing. And look, we've been talking about this all season long. It's just disappointing that this was the team they put together around him. And... It's not even a question of the talent. It's just a question of the fit. And that's always been the issue. Like, the, the roster around him did not make sense from the start. And it just... I, I Like, I think in a lot of ways, this outcome was kind of predictable. I, I mean, I don't think... I didn't expect the team to miss the playoffs, but I didn't really expect him to be a factor in the Western Conference. And given the fact that he missed almost a month, with that injury, like, it's, I don't know, it's not super surprising to me, like, that they are where they are. I mean, the, the way that it's unfolded has been kind of surprising, and the Lakers over the last few years have just, they have not done anything to build a culture there. And um, this is something uh, Asad Alvi, who's a, a devoted listener to the program, 
pointed out on Twitter, and it reminded me of something I wrote last year when the young guys on the team were kind of struggling a bit as the front office had this public dalliance with these free agents to be. They have this externalist team building philosophy that I don't think has served any of the young players that they've drafted. Like, th there is no plan to develop these players. They are really only there to serve as trade bait for other superstars. Um, the whole plan has basically been to carve out cap space to sign superstars. And because of that, like, there's been no emphasis on nurturing any kind of a growth or building a basketball program there. And the result now is that they don't, don't really have any kind of culture. They don't have an identity. And they're still just clinging to this hope of using the cap space that they're going to have to lure another star. And if it doesn't work, then what? I mean, where are they? Well, here's a star they might have lured. Not really. Carmelo Anthony. <laughs> no, I, th I think this is important because it, it goes to what you were just saying about like not really having a culture. And So the report this week was that the, the talks with Melo were on, on hold or paused and that if the Lakers get back in the playoff mix, then they'll go get Melo. But if they're not in the playoff mix, they're not going to bother and whatever. And I just think it's hilarious um, I think Magic Johnson and Kobe's agent, also known as Rob Polinka, who are running this team somehow, like the way they value players, it, it makes me laugh because they, they don't seem like competent basketball executives in 2019 in that they're, they're really looking at this as like, oh, if we get back in the race in the last like five weeks of the season, we're going to throw Carmelo Anthony into the mix. And look, I've come to appreciate Carmelo Anthony in some respects. I wrote a feature on him last month and, you know, talked to a bunch of players around the league about why Melo remains such a revered presence among his peers. But at the end of the day, if you're adding Carmelo Anthony for a playoff race, you know, in March 2019, you got a problem. And the Lakers got a lot of problems. Uh, you know, I don't know if you had anything else to say about the Lakers, but I'm, I'm kind of tapped out. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. I'm kind of looking forward to just not having to talk about them so much. And maybe we're at that point now just because it seems like their playoff hopes are basically quashed. And so, I mean, maybe we'll just keep talking about them until they're mathematically eliminated. But to me, they're not going to make it. And so, yeah, I'm, I mean, it's been kind of a sideshow all season long. And I'm looking forward to just being able to talk about something else. And we'll revisit it in the off season, which is going to be super fascinating because from what we can gather there hasn't been a ton of enthusiasm among the rest of the NBA star class about teaming up with LeBron and I don't know if this season will have changed anybody's mind about that so we'll see I mean if they can't put together an Anthony Davis trade in the offseason um, they're going to have to figure out what to do with that cap space because, I mean, they could roll it over and just hope to sign AD in 2020, but then that's another lost season of LeBron's late prime. And I don't even know what LeBron you're going to be getting in 2020-21. So uh, there's an urgency there for them that, I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out in the summertime. But for now, yeah, I think they're, they're more or less done for this season and, um, I don't know, it was a tire fire. <laughs> yeah, speaking of, uh, well, maybe tire fire is not the right word, the defending champs two times, but the Warriors, at least last night, were a bit of a tire fire. Um, and look, they're three and five in their last eight games. It's like as pedestrian as they've looked during this five-year run, especially during the KD era. Uh, and there's an interesting stat that I saw pop up on Twitter and I went into it, it checks out. So Clay Thompson didn't play last night and the Warriors looked terrible the Warriors when all of their big four play non-boogie edition so like Steph Clay KD Draymond they're 34 and 9 when even just one of those guys sits out they're 10 and 11 and I think that speaks to two things a boogie is not as integral as those four guys which I think we we know that but also the stunning lack of depth for this team and I know that in the playoffs top end talent is what matters and I know that they'll be the overwhelming favorites to win every series in four or five games as they should be. But again, I just think it's very stunning how a team with arguably the most talented five-man unit ever assembled also happens to be like only six, seven, or eight deep on most nights. It's like, it's completely boom or bust with them. For sure. I mean, it's like Clay Thompson doesn't play last night and it's Alfonso McKinney who's taking his place in the starting lineup. I mean, they don't have a ton of depth on the wing. It's been sort of a bugaboo for them, you know, to the extent that they can have a bugaboo. Like when <laughs> they've just been rolling through the league the last three seasons. They've but got a boogie boo. 
well, we can talk about that too because uh, if you look at their sort of uh, their numbers, you know, when Boogie is on the floor compared to when he's off, uh, he has made them worse. And I don't know if that's something they just need to figure out uh, with reintegrating him and figuring out how to play around him. Uh, how much of that is just uh, the fact that physically I mean, he's not really able to defend in space right now. And other teams have caught on to that and they're attacking him pretty regularly. And, you know, it's also a question of him taking touches away from other guys on that team who are maybe better equipped right now to create efficient offense. But uh, to that stat about them being 10 and 11 when one of those four guys doesn't play, I feel like the majority of those games are probably Steph, right? Probably, yeah. So I would say that that skews things a bit because we know that he's the most important player on the team and that they aren't nearly the same when he doesn't play. So I don't think it's the same as saying, you know, when, like that they're not a good team when, say, Clay or Draymond's play, out, right? Or even KD. I mean, I think the majority of those games are probably Steph being out, and that definitely makes them a completely different team. Um, and we've seen that over the last couple of years. But um, yeah, I don't know. The boogie thing to me is interesting. Like, how are they going to handle that? They're apparently going to sign Andrew Bogut for the rest of the season. Um, after Bogut, I think was named MVP uh, of the Australian Basketball League. Uh, so. I mean, maybe that is kind of in response to the fact that they haven't gotten the kind of uh, defense that they've needed out of Boogie. Just have another big body there who can ably protect the rim. Um, I mean, I don't know if Bogut's really more mobile than Boogie is at this point in time, but they obviously felt some need at the center position to have a little bit more depth. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I honestly think that Kabon Looney has had a pretty good season, and he definitely brings a little bit more mobility uh, and makes them a little bit more flexible defensively than Boogie does. So, I don't know. What do you think they do about this? I don't know. And I think what's interesting is what happens if, come playoff time, and it's going to happen at least a few games, you know, Boogie's sitting down the stretch of a close playoff game because, you know, it doesn't make sense to have him out there depending on the matchup. You know, it's one thing for everything to be all hunky-dory and all smiles and sunshine and rainbows when Boogie's just happy to be back. You know, he's worked his way back from injury. And he's just happy to be there, be around the guys and playing 20 minutes and whatever. But... Numbers-wise, DeMarcus Cousins is starting to round it to form. And him getting 18 minutes, say, in a playoff game that the Warriors win, but he doesn't fall, feel involved in, could lead to some tension. And that brings me to my next point. The thing with the, the weird thing with the Warriors, like these are the two-time defending champs. They've won three titles in the last four years. They're favored to win another one this year. You'd think that, you know, they go through a bad stretch in February, March, whatever it is, and they like it, it shouldn't really seem to affect them that much. Like, yeah, sure, they should care about playing well, but it really shouldn't seem to rattle them. And the Warriors this season, season especially, just seem like every little thing sends them into crisis mode. And I think last night was a good example. If anyone saw Kevin Durant's post-game uh, press conference, very rattled for a guy, you know, that's won the last two finals MVPs on a team that's in line to win their third straight Title, a reporter asks him about how Steve Kerr apparently said after the game that the Warriors, like, they're not playing with enough anger, and that's why they got their butts kicked by Boston, and Durant kind of got a spine up and said, oh, like, anger, I, I, you know, I thought we were supposed to be playing with joy, now it's anger, I don't agree with that, and then another reporter wanted to talk about Ron Adams, their assistant coach who runs their defense, and, you know, started off his question by saying, Kevin, when you first came here, you joked that you came here for Ron Adams. And before the guy could even get into the question he wanted to ask about Ron Adams in defense, Durant like snaps back like, oh, we're still talking about me coming here? Like he's just so defensive. I guess that speaks more to Durant than the Warriors, but still, it's just been interesting to me that this team is acting like a team that, you know, everything's dependent on this season and their legacy and whatever. And it's like, yo, you guys, you guys have got it. You're fine. Yeah, you're expected to win, but a bad stretch in February or March should not have you guys as rattled as it does. I don't know if KD is the right guy, though, to use as, you know, a representative sample yeah. for what the vibe of that team is <laughs> the right now. The guy whose life is basically just Drake lyrics, and, like, after a breakup? <laughs> yeah, probably not the right guy. To... I mean, his surliest rant came after, like, a 32-point win this season. Um, so, I mean, there, there might be just something else going on with him that isn't necessarily affecting the rest of the team, or it might be affecting the rest of the team. I don't really know, but... Um, He's obviously been, I don't know if I want to say like going through something, but he seems to be at his wit's end, at least as far as dealing with the media this season, for whatever reason. And, you know, I 
my feeling about it is, look, the KD doth protest too much. You know, if if you really are focused on this season and you're not thinking about free agency and there are no distractions and you just want to play ball, like, that's fine. Like, go ahead and do that. You know, you none of this stuff really has to affect you. But uh, the way that he's gone about dealing with, with the attention and the questions about free agency has really stoked the fire of all these rumors and... You know, the more forcefully he pushes back against them, I think the more interested people are going to be in those stories. And I don't think he's really done himself any favors with the way that he's handled it. Uh, I mean, you can kind of look at the way that Kawhi Leonard has handled similar questions this season, and he's just brushed them off and hasn't really given, you know, he's given non-answers, hasn't given it any credence at all, has just kind of quietly gone about his business. And the noise around him has more or less died down. I mean, there are still rumors about him wanting to go and sign with the Clippers in the offseason, which he may well want to do, but it's not like that's a story every single day. Uh, you know, nobody's covering the hell out of the impending Kawhi Leonard free agency, and maybe it's just because the Raptors aren't as interesting a team as the Warriors are, and uh, not as interesting a collection of personalities, but I just feel like if Durant just wants to put his head down and play basketball, like... He should know at this point in time, he's been in the league for 10 years, he should know what he can say to the media and how he can carry himself um, in a way that, that makes that noise die down. Um, and, and he hasn't done that. So no, He has most certainly not. Yeah. He has remained in his own feelings. If only there was a fellow superstar in the league who's constantly in his own feelings that is also a free agent this year and could potentially team up with KD in a major media market to break down every week and be <laughs> too good of a story to pass on. But alas, uh, I don't know. You got, you got anything else you want to get off your chest this week? Uh, no, I mean, I you know, looking to the last, what, like 17, 18 games of the season, um, I, I'm just fascinated by how things are going to shake out in the West. Um, there's actually been some separation in the playoff race at the bottom. Uh, the Clippers really haven't gone away, and they're increasingly looking like they're going to make the playoffs. Uh, the Spurs have kind of figured things out after that disastrous rodeo trip. And uh, the Kings certainly have their work cut out for them if they're going to get in. But also at the top, I mean, that first of all, uh, the Nuggets, given the Warriors' struggles of late, kind of had a chance to make their move and get to the one seat. But the Nuggets haven't been particularly good lately either. So you've got the race for the one and then that race for the two three seeds, uh, which is now, you know, the Blazers, Thunder, and Rockets are all tied. <coughs> and the way that the seeding shakes out is going to have so much to say about which of those teams is playing deep into the playoffs because um, matchups are everything and certainly avoiding the Warriors for as long as possible is uh, is going to be a recipe for uh, getting to where you want to go, which, I mean, realistically for all those teams, it is the conference finals. Yeah. Like the, you know, I, I still think in spite of all the stuff we're talking about with the Warriors, they are the overwhelming favorite to come out of the West. So uh, with, with everyone basically playing for second place, um, I mean let's not act like that doesn't mean anything, you know, especially for a team like the Blazers who getting to the conference finals will be a huge accomplishment for them. Uh, but if they wind up in the four seed, I don't see that happening. Yeah, no, agreed. I think, um, you know, we talked about, I think any team in the West playoff race right now, other than maybe the Clippers and the Spurs, I don't think could get there, but I think they can convince themselves they can get there. Mm -hmm. Any of those teams other than the Clippers to me should be able to convince themselves that if they can avoid the Warriors, they can get to the West finals. Yeah. I mean, even the Jazz. Yeah. And again, you mentioned the Blazers, like how great, for the Jazz, like for that franchise, for that market, getting to the West Finals would be great. For sure. All right. I think that does it for uh, this portion of Pound the Rock. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, I'll be talking to Darius Miles and Quentin Richardson. A couple of knuckleheads. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And if you haven't already, download the Score app for all of the breaking news, live scores, and feature content you'll ever need. Welcome back to Pound the Rock. We are very pleased to be joined by our next couple of guests. Anyone who grew up watching the NBA in the 2000s should know them. They now have their own podcast on the Players' Tribune called Knuckleheads. Darius Miles, Quentin Richardson, thanks for joining us, guys. No, man, thank you for having us. So the reason we have you on is, you know, it's uh, it's a unique opportunity for us. Usually when we're talking to players, we're talking, you know, just about basketball and asking basketball questions. It's pretty rare that we have former players on to talk about another podcast, but you guys have your own podcast with the Players' Tribune called Knucklehead. So I guess, first and foremost, just tell our listeners what, what Knuckleheads is, the podcast, and you know how it came to be and what they can expect from listening to you guys. 
Um, you want to go first? Do you want me to go? No, you can go. Um, I would say uh, just uh, our podcast, the Knuckleheads, man. Me and D came together because you know we felt like we were we were two former players who were like you know OGs in the game, and um, we 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 have great relationships with a lot of the current players and um, many of the players before us, and as well as our peers that we played with while we were in the league. So. We knew that we would, you know, what we felt that we would be able to um, deliver some pretty cool stories and some insights that, that uh, probably other regular media types wouldn't be able to, just because a lot of the a lot of the guests and a lot of the guys that we have on, we we really have relationships with and have um, different scenarios that we've been in with them that we could bring to light that are some pretty funny and cool different stories that you really don't hear that we felt that uh, listeners will really be intrigued to hear and, and get a lot of uh, laughs out of and have a good time just enjoying the pod, listening to us and learning things about some of their favorite players that, that they wouldn't always know because, you know, they're not always asked the same type of questions that we ask them. And for anyone that doesn't know, I mean, like I said, most fans in the 2000s uh, should know, but why is it called Knuckleheads? Uh, from a celebration that we had uh, when we started playing, a uh, celebration that we had, we used to ball our fists and uh, tap our foreheads and uh, just stuff like it, the name, and it kind of represented that a lot of people remember us from that. Like, people still see me to this day and they might just say my name and after they say my name, they, they throw the gesture, tap their head, you know, with their fist. So uh, that's mostly, I feel like, a known thing for us. I felt it fit, fit perfect for our show and, you know, what we're trying to represent. I remember coming up, like, back in elementary school, uh, yeah, the head tap was a big, big celebration in the schoolyard. I remember I had a friend, Will, in, like, grade seven or eight. This guy would do... He would do the uh, knuckleheads head tap. Like he'd do it after like passing a test. He'd do it after getting good news. It was pretty funny. But yeah, that I think that celebration was pretty see, iconic for that era. See, now you making us feel oh, because you saying when you were back in middle school or whatever, and like that 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 that, that, that that's that's not cool right there now. <laughs> All right, well, you know, as long as Q older than me, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, you guys are a year apart, right? Q's a year older. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so I, I know you guys have obviously been asked this a thousand times, but again, for people that don't know, so how did the Knucklehead celebration come to be? Me coming out of high school, I, uh, I still had like uh, friends and stuff that I knew from like, you know, across the country that, uh, that was still playing high school ball. And uh, one of the people that I knew was um, – Brandon and uh, Hassan Adams from Westchester High School. Uh, so we used to go to their games when we got to L.A. They was like the number one team in California at the time. Uh, they had Trevor Reese on their team. They had a uh, a nice team, you know what I'm saying, a nice side of the team. So we used to go to their games all the time, and they wanted us to, like, uh, they was doing it, and they wanted us to show love because we was on the NBA team and, you know, we'd be on TV, so they wanted us to show them love. So once we kind of was, you know, showed them love within the game, it seemed like fans, like, demanded us to do it. Like, like was disappointed if we didn't do it during the game or some point of the game. And uh, it, just, it just took a life of its own, for real. Yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anyone in the NBA right now that has any kind of trademark celebration. I guess Melo, though he's not playing, you know, had the – the three fingers to the head after a three, or I know Russ and a few other guys, when they get a smaller guard in the post or something, and he can't guard them, they kind of make the make the gesture with their hand, like this guy is too small, he can't guard me. Oh yeah, Russ, he rocked the baby sleep. He rocked the baby sleep. I like that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. James Harden got a nice. James Harden got a real nice one, like his celebration. Yeah, the, the stirring the pot, cooking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did did either one of you guys, while you were playing, ever you know think that you would eventually get into media? Was it something you thought you wanted to do, or or did it kind of just come naturally in your retirement? Uh, for me, I, I actually went to in when I was in school when I went to be called. I, I took broadcast journalism because early on I was like, yeah, that's what I'll do. But like while I was playing. 
I would say kind of towards the end, once I started to see a few a few guys that I knew, like Jalen Rose getting into it, I, that was like a point where I thought about it. But everything, you know, like not like all times, like my, I thought I was still going to be playing basketball when it when it ended for me. So it, it didn't end the way that you think and all of that. So while I was waiting to be, you know, get a call to try and get picked up by another team to still play, uh, Dan Van Grundy got the job that, with the Pistons and everything, and he reached out to me, asked me if I wanted to work in the, you know, in the front office on the other side of it. So that was kind of like effectively the end of my career, you know, without even knowing it. So I went that route before it came back into the whole, you know, the analysts or broadcast or the media side. But um, it was something that I kind of, especially at a young age, when I went to college, that was like my my, my thing. I was like, yeah, I'll go do this, and then when I get through playing ball, I'll be like an analyst or a broadcast guy. But, like, while I was playing, it, it kind of, you know, was just in the back backside of my mind and stuff like that. I know it's not necessarily like uh, traditional media. It's not like you guys are reporting on games and stuff like that. But still, it, it is a form of media. Have you, you know, since doing this, I know it's only been a few weeks so far, but, you know, have you guys maybe either gained an appreciation from the like for the media's role in the NBA? Or maybe on the other end, have you looked at it like, oh, this is actually pretty easy? Uh, well, I can. Well, I, I was going to explain the first. Well, for me, it it wasn't it wasn't even a thought about. I didn't really care for the cameras and the microphones. Uh, me and Q, we, me and Q did the article, and he kind of like convinced me that it was going to be a. It wasn't going to be like what the typical interviewer or so forth on. It's kind of like we sitting on the couch and just talking about the love of the game, or you know what I'm saying? Just, yeah being basketball players, being kind of goofy in the room and, and just cameras and our, uh, now being on it and being there, it's, it's still fun. I just don't be wanting to put, I don't be wanting to ask the same questions you hear on every sports show every day, what's kind of going on, you know what I'm saying, like on every sports show about trades and, you know what I'm saying, just different situations. I more, more want to bring a positive and a good vibe to our show and just talk about the good things, the positive things, the growth uh, of the players, the journeys the players that went through and kind of uh, give a home to the players. I think it, it we want enough talk shows kind of talking about just players. And we just not talking about just basketball players. We talking about all athletes in general, all entertainers in general. For our show, we want to bring like everybody on and just talk about their journey because a lot of people don't know what it took or or what they went through or a funny story about how they got there to get to where they is, to be who they is. So I think uh, it don't really feel like media when we kind of being a fan and just talking about stuff we love, like we sitting in, a, in, in front of a TV on the couch, you know? Right, right. Yeah, you mentioned, you know, even just some funny stories the players will, will tell. I was talking to Quentin off air before we started about I was listening to the J.R. Smith episode you guys just did on my way into work today and even just the funny story he mentioned about how even though he's the Henny God, uh, he's only actually had three glasses of Hennessy in his whole life. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that, that those, are, those are the type of things that, you know, that we, we kind of love to bring to light and stuff like that. Like, the guy has a nickname that he literally has not earned and it's like, you know, he doesn't, he, he doesn't, he's not a big Hennessy drinker. So like, that was something that I, I know a lot of people didn't know because the whole world, you know, social media wise, they had started calling him like, you know, the Henny guy. But this man don't even drink like Hennessy, brown liquor like that. So it was like, it was, it was, yeah. that was like a little nugget that, that, that let the people know that like, and he was funny with it. He was like, you know, it's cool, I'll take it. But like, I don't really drink Hennessy like that. Yeah, it, it, and it'd be, it be the smaller detail stuff, you know, like we don't go out our way to be trying to, as a player or as an athlete, we don't be, with stuff being a media or something, we don't really go out our way to be trying to prove something to the world to be like, oh, no, it's not like this, it's that. But just, you know, just the, the, the natural, the natural just conversation and talk to have, just be talking about it, something like that. He he finally got the opportunity to tell the world and tell anybody who was listening, like, look, they labeled me this, but I never really drunk it like that. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. I thought that was just good. And that, that, that brings the good vibes to, like, not being in a negative way, just we sitting there laughing about it. 
But, you know, that brings a good vibe of just talking about just small stories that people might not know in the detail. And people might still to this day been trying to label him as any God and just kind of got explained without even really trying to explain it. Your first three episodes, you've already had a you know a pretty big cast of characters. You've had Jimmy Butler, uh, Alan Iverson, Gary Payton, Kyle Lowry, J.R. Smith, as we mentioned. Can you guys tease any any upcoming guests for future episodes? Uh, we got. I mean, we got we got we got Kyrie Irving coming. Um, Jason Tatum. Um, yeah, I don't want to tell everybody walking. everything. We yeah. got we got we got we got some we got some pretty big guys though. You know, we we got great relationships with 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 um. Some of the best guys in the league. So I mean, we definitely trying to, you know, bring bring some heat with the guy with the guests and everything with people we know that people want to hear from. So I don't want to give all of them away, but uh, you know, we got we got we got a couple big ones still still in the chamber. that's gonna you know be pretty big toward the end. We saving them. All right, so yeah, I can't wait to to hear those. I wanted to get your thoughts on some basketball topics before I let you guys know. So I got a few uh, basketball questions. The first one it actually came to mind while listening to the J.R. Smith episode. I thought it was interesting. Jr. was talking about how back when he first um, came out of high school and got in the league, the relationship between vets and youngsters, especially like teenagers in the league, was very different than what it is now. And he was mentioning back then, even vets on your own team, when you were the youngster, you know, they didn't necessarily take you under their wing and mentor you and teach you their moves. They almost looked at it as like, oh, this this young kid's coming for my job. So, you know, can you guys speak to that attitude back then and maybe when you started to see the shift of, of maybe a better relationship between the vets and the youngsters in the league? I think I think every situation is different. I mean, I think he was speaking on the situation he went through. When we came in as rookies, we didn't really – I mean, we had the vets we had, Sean Rook, Derek Stone. They were they were good to us. They were trying to show us the way and, and, and nurture us along. And I mean, that possibly could be because they were much older than us, and we were clearly opposite and not even playing the same positions as those guys. But I don't, you know, Jr. experiences his own. That's the one thing about all of our guests and all of our players. We all have different experiences and different things. So I mean, what he was saying, he was speaking his truth to what he was going through with his veterans. For us, we didn't really have a negative effect, you know, negative relationship or a negative type deal with our veterans we were a really young team and it was like so many of us that were young so the vets we had we were lucky to have they were pouring into us you know you talk about like unique experiences for each guest and, and each player and darius so you know you came out of high school uh, which you know doesn't happen anymore but there's talk that in a relatively soon the nba soon comes soon comes you're right exactly that it's coming back so uh, is there any sort of insight that you can provide you know for our listeners as a guy who did come out of high school maybe whether it's the challenges of of doing that advice you would give to you know future guys coming out of high school and maybe how you know how their ride can go as smoothly as possible uh like me uh you know, like I, I, I feel free. You know, players should be able to do what they want to do. Uh, but coming out of high school, uh, sometimes you be in high school, you playing on your high school team, you've been there for four years, and you kind of don't have the same. If you, if your coaching staff is or, or your school is not really consistent on, you know, strictness and or discipline or you know teaching you the things, you probably don't get it. Sometimes you, players come from high school and get it in college. But uh, coming to a league, hopefully they get that. You know what I'm saying? I feel like I went, I didn't get it. Like, we was policing our own when I got to the Clippers. And, you know, I wish I would have kind of had that structure. You know what I'm saying? Of, a, you know, how college was. Or, or like Miami Heat organization. You know, a structure-type environment. Because I really never had that. But outside of that, I felt like, you know, once you're on the level and you're good enough, you they gonna weed it out who's good enough and who's not. You know, I don't feel like everybody's gonna be just rushing going out of high school because they gonna see this league and this league is a high level. Yeah. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you guys about is I was reading a, a GQ Q and A you guys had actually done talking about the podcast and one thing you guys mentioned is you know obviously you were both drafted uh, by the Clippers in the same year and you went there and. You know, you had a, a great line in there where you said that Kobe and Shaq were winning championships, you know, in the same city, but you guys were being treated like you were too. Can you guys maybe just talk about what you meant by that and, and what the vibe was around the Clippers back then, even though, you know, there were some lean years? We was, uh, uh, oh yeah, we was, uh, oh, we was, uh, we was kind of the, 
what we meant is like, yeah, they was winning the championship, but the average age on that team was probably 27, 28 years old or, or close to 30. They was older, older. A lot of them had kids. And when they used to see us, we was kind of like NBA players, but we was playing with their kids because <laughs> we were so young. But uh, a lot of them was like married and, you know, been in the league. And that was kind of like the average of them. We were so young that most of the people in Los Angeles used to see us more than they actually seen the, the Kobe's, the Shaq's, the, the Rick Fox, the, the Robert Ory's, like these big time players. They used to see us actually way more than they used to see them because we used to be out to the high school games, to the college parties, to the college you know what I'm saying? Like with the younger crowd and only people from the Lakers that really used to be out kind of, that used to be seen a little bit was like Tyron Lou and Devin George. Like our team used to see half our team in the mall or half our team at a, at a party together. Like, you know, like we see the AAU team or something. So I think that's, that's the, that's kind of like the, the, the dynamic of like, yeah, they was winning the championships, but, it was like we was doing the promo. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. You guys obviously have. Um, yeah, they were they 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 were the real champs. We were the, we were the little small people's champs over here. <laughs> well, yeah. on, on that note, kind of the Clippers being the people's champs. It's actually Pat Beverly was talking about that the other day. How the Clippers are, you know, for a different kind of fan, the more blue collar fan. You guys have the unique perspective of having played in LA for the Clippers. Um, between your experiences and even maybe just in talking to players now, like, do you guys get the sense that, you know, it, is it seen by players as, okay, LA is just LA, or is there still that kind of stigma where the Clippers are like second class, you know, citizens in their own city? I don't want to say that they, I don't get to feel like, uh, I don't want to say second class citizens, but I mean, the way I feel, I mean, especially being a part of it, I can say this on, on both coasts. I mean, you look at it, you have, you know, the New York Knicks and the Brooklyn Nets, and you have the L.A. Clippers and the, and the L.A. Lakers. I think in L.A., the, it's always going to be a Lakers town unless the Clippers come winning some championships. It's not saying that, the, you know, the Clippers are always – they got Clipper Nation, they got their fans, and they got their respect, but it's always going to be a, a Lakers town until the Clippers win championships. And so, same thing with New York. It's like New York is like Brooklyn – Brooklyn is cool, but it's like until Brooklyn really take over and win some championships, it's going to be a Knicks city. So it's like, and there's no disrespect to anybody because the Brooklyn is having a great year right now. As, I mean, as far as compared to, to the Knicks, and it's still going to be a Knicks city. You know, they they like, okay, cool. We just waiting to get a draft, waiting to get our two free agents. So it's still a Knicks city, and I think that's how L.A. is. It's like the, the Clippers have a uh, – Clipper Nation is unbelievable. They have an overwhelming amount of support now. The owners come in and change things up, and now it looks like a real Clippers home game when you're there, and all of those different things. As yeah. opposed to when we were there, it still looks like a Lakers game. Yeah, but yeah, you know, like those things are those things have changed. But I mean, like I say, I think us as players, that's the way we feel. I don't know how the fans feel. I feel like until the other team wins championships, it's hard to say that they've overtaken anything. Yeah. I feel like the support is, is way up. I feel from the time that we played to now, I feel like, man, it's, it 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 jumped like 20 times more, you know what I'm saying? So 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 much mm -hmm. more. And just to see the support and the fan base, you know what I'm saying, that they, they actually got, like, we went to the game and just to see how the, how the stadium was when it's a Clipper game and, how the culture is just coming back. It's, it really feel like two different teams, you know. We didn't feel like that. But the, the, the crowd, they got the players that just come in. They got the people that just come to Clipper games and support the Clippers. And um, back then when we played, it was like, man, like, every, of course everybody loved the Lakers, but they loved how young and talented and how hard we played. So they gave us a lot of love to it. Some die hard. We 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 gained new fans, and we had some of the die hard Clipper fans from the eighties, nineties. That was a shame to wear their Clipper gear to start back wearing their Clipper gear. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to mention just before I uh, let you guys go, this one's for Q. I know we kind of started uh, this interview with you guys joking around that I was making you feel old, talking about those elementary school memories. So Q, you actually fourteen years ago you led 
the NBA in total three-pointers, 226. Nowadays, there's like seven or eight guys every year that are getting that. You know, Steph's putting up 300 a year. Uh, shooters like yourself and, you know, former players that, that were shooters, do you guys ever think about, like, man, if I played in the game today? Ah, uh, man, we literally talk about that all the time. Literally, like, me and peers of mine, guys that play at the same time, we talk about, you know, the difference in the game, how how I could possibly play a stretch four in this NBA and all of those different things. So, I mean, it's definitely, you know, like I said, we, 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 we NBA hoop guy lifers. So this is all we talk about in different ways of how we could. And I mean, we not, we not some of the older guys that, that, that look at the league and, you know, it's, it's like, oh, I hate the way they play now. Like I'm, I'm the type, I was a fan before I made the NBA. I was a fan when I was in the NBA, I'm still a fan now. And I feel like I will be one forever, whichever way the game evolves. I'm evolving with it. I love to watch the guys. The young guys are talented. Yeah, they don't do everything the same way we did or the guys before us. But, I mean, everybody's putting their own mark on the game. And, I mean, I appreciate that in the game. And I appreciate the way the game is growing and how big it's gotten. So, for me, I just love watching and being being able to be up close and into it the way we are. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great perspective to have. And I think that's the perspective, honestly, that fans, you know, hope that veterans and, and older players and former players have. All right, um, Quentin Richardson, Darius Miles, really appreciate you guys coming on. And for any of our listeners that haven't already checked in, definitely check out uh, their Knuckleheads podcast on the Players' Tribune. It's it's very engaging conversation with some big stars. Thanks, guys. Yes, sir. Appreciate you for having us, guys, man.